What another grand blessing it is that we can assemble and gather this morning with hearts that are so filled with thanksgiving and adoration to God. We're so delighted for every person that's here, our membership and visitors who've come our way. We trust that our worship indeed will first and foremost be directed according to the pattern that God has revealed, but also of course it'll be really encouraging to each of us that we might this week be stronger and more fortified in the faith. As you probably can see on the slide to my left, we'll be looking at some paradoxes this morning. As I began to prepare or at least make study and research for the matter of the lesson, it was a bit impressive to me how often paradoxes are found in the Bible. How often God has utilized a paradox to teach you and me some dramatic and unforgettable truths. In fact, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, we'll be looking at several of them this morning. Some introductory thoughts might well be these first and foremost. As you and I appreciate the life that is found in the Word of God. The words that I say unto thee, they are spirit and they are life, Jesus said in John 6 verse 63. And with the nature of that life we're able to find, today we're going to attack that word by making thought of a paradox. It might be that we should define what we mean by that first. What is a paradox and what are some ways in which you and I can appreciate the interesting way it states things? That's what the latter part of this slide is all about. A paradox is simply this. A statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet it's true. I've listed on that particular statement. I heard Johnny Ramsey many years ago identify a paradox like this. It's true standing on its head to gain attention. I've always thought that was an interesting way to think about a paradox. You'll notice at the bottom I've chosen just a few interesting ones. Those of you that like computers, I hope you'll find the first one very intriguing. There are sometimes warnings that you and I can find. Think about what this sounds like. No keyboard detected, press F1 to continue. That kind of thing you and I can at least appreciate in the form of a paradox. George Orwell, perhaps in a very famous one, stated this as a paradox. War is peace, freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Our study today is, of course, not about what a man may have written, but what is in the Word of God touching the subject of a paradox. As we begin to look at them, I've chosen five of them in the Bible. We will choose them as our considerations, and as we do so, I hope we'll each be greatly encouraged to think about how much truth is in these little paradoxes. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and it is to that one I'll turn your attention first. 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 18. The inspired writer put it in language like this, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. And there we have it. We are admonished, and those of ancient Corinth were just like we. In order to be wise, we first have to be a fool. Now that sounds like a paradox. How is it that we're to be a fool in order to be wise? Well, let's develop that using these thoughts to guide us. We're so very aware, aren't we, that human knowledge and the pursuit and the desire of the human family is always to gain and to greatly enhance our understanding and our knowledge. 
Even Solomon understood that in Ecclesiastes 12, verse number 12, when he quickly highlighted of the making of many books, there is no end. You'll notice, though, that leads us to appreciate this. We are so much in a position to appreciate the encouragement of our thinking, the encouragement of our reasoning abilities, the encouragement and the enhancement and the pursuit of that which involves analytical and systematic approach to an issue using human knowledge as the guide. But therein lies the problem. It was the problem with which ancient Corinth was wrestling. The Corinthians were individuals who tried to base every solution on what they could figure out themselves, what they could understand and pose a solution to by their understanding. It is in that regard that we now notice. Paul, earlier in this same book, had made this statement, verse 26 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Paul makes a statement there, doesn't he? That is a basic generalization. It is true that there are occasions in which very learned individuals and very highly intellectual people, some are Christians, but there aren't many. Far more often than not, those with high learning and those who trust their own abilities to think and reason, they find the Bible too simplistic. They find the things of God beneath them. And sometimes they just aren't interested in the simpleness that goes with it. And therefore, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, Paul said after the faith, not many of them are called. Now you and I realize the word call there has to mean, it has to do with those who have responded to the call of God. No wonder now in chapter 3, verse 18, he says, If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. The word fool there is not an insult. Rather, it is a reference in the Bible to those who are able in simplicity to approach that which they're told. Let me say that again. That reference to the word fool is a reference to those who are able to simplistically and directly do that which they're told. You and I realize that is the heart and core of Christianity, isn't it? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Those of you that think you're wise in this world, you first have to become a fool, honestly understanding and simply striving to approach that which is the Word of God. Don't allow human reason, human philosophy, human tradition to cause you problems. The Colossians, of course, faced that same issue, didn't they? In Colossians 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul warned them, Don't you be moved after the traditions of the men, after the traditions of the world, away from Christ. The things of the Bible are so straightforward in the sense that they present to us exactly the human condition. We're sinners. We are far away from the greatness and holiness of God and He sent His Son to die for me and you that we through Him might be able to be made righteous. Any appeal other than that the sophistry and the fanciness of the human family leads us directly back to this verse. It is still true today that there are many false things in human knowledge. False things. Sounds ironic, doesn't it? False things in human knowledge. 
1 Timothy 6 verse 20 makes reference to, the, to those things in science. In Jeremiah 9 24, you and I are reminded immediately that in order to be wise, we first have to recognize the need to come to God. I would ask you to notice back in verse 18 then of that text in 1 Corinthians 3, it says, If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, you might want to underline that particular phrase, in this world. If you and I then expect to be wise in the sight of God, we have to become a fool. Simply honoring the statement of what God has revealed and done, that will in fact attach to the next one. After looking at this paradox, the one involving wise and foolishness, look at how the next one is presented. I've simply entitled it Perspective. Also drawn from the Corinthian letters, this time 2 Corinthians. Please turn there with me as we look at a few verses taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Perspective. While you're turning to that location, let me make a prefacing comment. And I've included it at the top statement on that slide. The perspective that you and I have as Christians is so far removed. It is eons apart from the perspective of those that are not Christians. That will help us understand some of the statements we're about to read. Because after all, the individuals with whom you and I work or the individuals with whom you and I go to school, although they're human beings like you and me, and although they are, in fact, many of the features of the human being, their perspective on this world and their perspective on life is so different. Look at these in particular. Beginning in verse 4 of this chapter, Paul made a listing of some of the things that ministers in the gospel in that first century era were facing. You may notice in quickly he mentions afflictions, necessities, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, and fastings. Those first century brethren were so oftentimes in very difficult circumstances. Paul said, these are some of the things we've endured, but he what many means finished. He goes on to say, verse 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Let me ask you to think about how can all that be true? Let me notice some of them again as you appreciate how different they are. How could it be that a person could be a rightful Christian both by honor and by dishonor? How could it be that a person could be a faithful servant of the Lord by both an evil report and a good report? How could it be that an individual could be a faithful and righteous man or woman at the same time as both a deceiver and yet is true? What about verse 9? How could a person both as unknown and yet well-known be a servant to God? How could an individual both as dying and yet alive be a faithful Christian? How could a person as chastened and yet not killed be a servant to the Almighty God? I think we see the idea. 
we are faced with a whole host of paradoxes here, and every one of them apparently somehow is true. Why don't we use the bottom of the slide to express some thoughts about that? I've chosen a few of them, in fact, most all of them, but why don't we go back to verse 8? By honor and dishonor. You and I know very well those first century Christians, on many occasions they were directly blasphemed, reviled, and hailed as liars. Paul even had in his possession letters allowing him to imprison those who militated against the faith that he thought was true. You'll notice in that particular passage, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, isn't the following statement true? Faithful brethren lifted high the hands of Paul after he became a Christian, for they treasured his ability and his capability in defending the truth. But by the same token, the Jews and others warred against him. So he had an evil report by those that were his enemies, those that were enemies to the truth, but he had a good report of those that were friends to it. What about you and me today? There will be individuals who will be your enemy. Although a faithful Christian, you and I may well be, they will not speak highly of us. They'll insult you, stab you in the back, blaspheme you, and take advantage of you if they can. Because they don't love the truth. And they do not have any interest in supporting it. But faithful brethren will give you a good report. They'll rejoice with you when you rejoice and weep with you when you weep. They will stand with you in defense of the great truth of God. And so, by the same token, there's both an evil report and a good one, depending on the audience that shares it. Look at another example. Honorable and dishonorable. There will be individuals, again, who will greatly defend the honor of your life and mine as Christians. It'll be our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But there will be those in the world who won't give us any honor, for they don't have the same perspective we do. They think you're narrow-minded and fundamental and you do not understand the all-encompassing tolerance of God, so we're told. And therefore they won't honor us because of the stance we take. May I say, notice again, there's two completely different reports depending on the audience that gives it. Look at a third example, both known and unknown. Now that one's very intriguing, isn't it? Look at the exact way Paul states it, verse 9, as unknown and yet well-known. You and I now know exactly what that means as we contemplate the very things we've just spoken of previously. Faithful Christians, they may be well-known by only a few, a small circle of brethren in that church in Corinth, but yet we know that the sound of them went out everywhere by the character and the ability that they were able to proclaim and support Paul in preaching ministries and others elsewhere. Today, you and I at Pippin, we may be known here in a small part of Putnam County and Jackson County, but by the missionaries that we send and the efforts and the work we're able to support, we can in fact reach the souls of people thousands of miles away. Isn't it true in light of all of that? Look at the next thing. Dying and yet alive. As Christians, you and I died to sin. We do not live a habitual life of sin. We can't be pleasing to God. That has to be a part of the distant past. And so in that sense, we are dead to sin, but yet we are so full of life. 
Because it's Christ that lives in us. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. I, as the man of sin, died. But Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. All of us make that statement. Indeed, though dead, how very much alive we are. And there's another sense in which the matter of that death is so very intriguing. For not only did we die to sin, we realized many in the world might look upon you and me as basically individuals that for all practical purposes are dead. Think about the perspective that the world so often uses. If I might quickly select a few of the particular matters. You mean you don't smoke, you don't dance, you don't drink, you don't gamble, don't you ever have any fun? You're like a dead person. And yet you and I are more alive than that person will ever be until he obeys the gospel. For we don't have a life based on those physical things that are sinful. We have a life based on the everlasting eternal truth of God and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son. The world so often looks upon us as without fun, without entertainment, without enjoyment, and yet Paul could even affirm we are very much alive. Isn't that exciting? And notice how it ends. As having nothing and yet possessing all things. In the eyes of the world, you and I as Christians may very well have little, if anything, because we don't put our treasure in the things of this world. God may well have blessed us with those things, and we're thankful for that, but our treasure's not in it. Our treasure's somewhere else. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Matthew 6, 19-21. You'll notice all of these paradoxes are found in 2 Corinthians 6. Aren't they descriptive of your life and mine in Christ today? How about another one? In addition to looking at all of them, what about this paradox? I've entitled it Strong versus Weak. We again will look at 2 Corinthians, this time chapter 12. Just turn over a few verses and look at some of the remarkable statements that Paul made about himself and some of the things you and I learn about weakness and strength. Let me select, if I mind, in particular at verse number 10. Therefore I take pleasure in, in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. Now how could it be that in order to be strong, you're first weak? Or how could it be at the same time that I am both weak and strong at the same time? That's a really good paradox, isn't it? And yet the Holy Spirit said that this was the case through Paul. Let's revisit some of the scenes earlier in that chapter that brought Paul to make that statement. Paul had just made a comment about the great blessing and the capabilities he had enjoyed. He'd been taken to the third heaven and he'd been revealed to things that were unutterable, unspeakable. All oh, the things Paul must have seen in that third heaven. Yet, in order to keep him humble and in order to make sure his feet were, if you please, remaining on the ground, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He played three times that it might be removed in prayer. 
But then you notice God responded this. Verse number 9. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. There's the background for chapter 10, for verse 10. My strength is made perfect in weakness. When any individual relies upon his own strength, be it mental strength, physical strength, or other bodily, fleshly approaches to strength, that person is weak as branch water in the sight of the Lord because our strength is as nothing. Our strength, you see, pales in comparison to the almightiness of God, the capabilities of the great God of heaven, that which He can bring about. Isn't it true Then, in verse number 10 He said, When I am weak, then I am strong. When Paul divested himself of approaches and reliance upon the physical matters of the flesh, then the strength of Christ could be manifested in him and through him. And there is no difference between then and now in that regard, is there? Look at a few of these examples, if you would. We'll draw a few from the Old Testament as we at least ponder this thought a little bit more richly. Revisit with me that scene in Joshua chapter 3. The children of Israel had wandered for so long in the wilderness and finally had advanced to the eastern side of the Jordan River. They were shortly to pass over, but may we never forget when did they cross over that river. In Joshua 3 verses 14 and following, we find that it occurred at the particular season of the year when the river was at flood stage. The water was the highest it was going to be virtually the entire year. And God chose that time for them to cross the river. Why not cross it when it was low? Why not cross it when it was very easy? Because if He did it then, the power might rest with man and not with God. But if it was at high tide, if it was at the highest of its character, then it would have to be recognized it was only by the power of God that the crossing of that Jordan took place. And so it was. Look at another example taken from Judges chapter 7. Gideon was that servant of the Lord who on that occasion was charged with the fighting of the Midianites. You and I well remember that a large host had been assembled. 32,000 men were ready to go to battle in defense of the things of God. God told Gideon, that's too many. If you take that many into battle, you're going to win and you'll think it was by your hand that it happened. You'll think it was only because of your numbers and your abilities militarily. God said, send every one of the men home who are, who are afraid. 22,000 men of them went home. That left 10,000. God said, that's still too many, Gideon. If you take that many, you still may fear that it's because of your ability. We all remember the test then that was delivered. Go down and let the men drink water. There will be some that will bend down on their knees and drink directly. There will be others who will lap it like a, like, like a, using their hand to cup it to their mouth. When they went down to the water, 300 of them, only 300 drank in the proper fashion. God said, those are the ones I want you to take. 300. The other 9,700 were sent back home. Gideon went into battle and they won. Doesn't that remind us the strength again was with God? It didn't rest with Gideon. It didn't rest with the others that were part of the army that he took. 
Maybe one final Old Testament, or rather example, would be the one drawn from Acts chapter 4. Have you ever thought about the apostles? Here was Jesus who set in course the greatest religion the world has ever known or ever shall know. And yet He died. And He left the major lifting efforts of those afterward in the hands of twelve men. Twelve men. Have you ever thought about the occupations of those men? The capabilities of those men? They weren't lawyers and professors, and they weren't individuals well known for their expertise in diplomacy. They weren't known for their other abilities to lead nations like kings and princes and presidents. They were fishermen, tax collectors, and others of that kind of life. In Acts 4.13, we notice they were called ignorant and unlearned men, and yet they have blazed the trail for 2,000 years in what they've left behind as the, as the success of New Testament Christianity. Isn't that great? What God can do with what looks like little, what He can do with your life and mine. Notice one more time, we are strong when we're weak. That means, again, we're strong in the sight of God when we divest ourselves of earthly appreciations of attainment and strive only to be humble servants to what God has commanded. What about paradox number four? Having looked at all of them, you'll notice at the very bottom, it challenges us to appreciate the fourth one. This one I've titled, Rich Versus Poor. We probably anticipated this, and maybe this was the one you first thought of as we gave appreciation for paradox. It goes all the way back to Proverbs 13, verse 7. I would ask you to think about the powerful way that's worded. There you'll notice one more time. There are those who exert great effort in this life to be physically rich. They base their existence apparently on that which accords to money possessions and things that are able to be seen. But you and I learn that as the Proverbs writer developed it, that immediately points us to the inspired words of Paul. The love of money is the root of all evil. Did he not say earlier than that, having food and raiment, let us be there with content, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can take nothing out. That simple thought alone should help us realize we really are rich when we are poor from the perspective of the things that this world would call riches because our riches are somewhere else. They really are. And because of that, we have, God has promised to take care of us. We'll have our food and we'll have our clothing and we'll have our shelter. And anything else besides that are great blessings indeed. But our final treasure is really somewhere else. We longingly look forward to appreciations of listening to how Jesus explained these things. In Luke chapter 12, the man whose crops brought forth so many, he decided to pull down his barns and build bigger ones, but God had the last say. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? They wouldn't do him any good at the day of judgment. Later, you and I appreciate in Luke 16, there was a rich man that died, but where did he find himself afterward? He sure wanted to be where Lazarus was, but it was too late then. You'll notice Jesus then leads us to appreciate 
this statement in Proverbs 13 is so true, isn't it? We really are rich. When we are rich in things of God, but from the world's perspective, that makes us poor. What about your approach to things and what about mine? It really is a telling question, isn't it? Maybe those things will close that slide and ask us to ponder the very one from which the lesson text came today. If you've kept count, you know there's one more. Paradox 5. Back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus was speaking, and this is the place where He made that statement, and I'd like you to think about it with me. Proverbs chapter number 10. We'll not read a great deal of that chapter, but I would ask you to notice at least the context of where this is found. Beginning in verse 37, it says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. There one more time is a great paradox, isn't it? At the same time, we find life, but we lose it. At the same time, we lose life, but we find it. What did Jesus mean by that? May I suggest that the word in Greek that is translated find means to discover. It involves one who has exerted effort toward the approach of a particular thing. And so in verse 39, he that discovers his life, he that exerts effort to determine it and to locate it, shall lose it. On the other hand, that individual who in verse 39 loses his life shall ultimately find it. That's a timeless lesson for every one of us, isn't it? If you and I really want life, we've got to lose it. All along the, the day, we have seemingly discussed many things that have beaten around that topic, haven't we? You'll notice that in order to save my life, I've got to lose it. Jesus will restate this later in Matthew 16, 25. In John 12, 25, to love life, one must lose it. What does this mean? Thankfully, we have the Lord's explanation. I would ask you to consider very carefully the explanation in that passage in John, for that illuminates all these others. The kind of life that Jesus was discussing was eternal life. If you and I want to find, to discover, to possess eternal life, we've got to lose ourselves in light of what this life offers. If our treasures on this earth will never go to heaven, we can't. We're going to be where our treasure finally is. And that treasure will lead us to that place of doom and ruin and torment. If we want to go to heaven, our treasure's got to be there. Where's your treasure? If you want to find life, you've got to lose your appreciation and your strong desire for the things of this life. All of us do. When you and I think about Jesus, He only lived here a little over 33 years. And yet He transformed the nature of what it meant to be alive. Didn't Paul say it like this in Romans 12? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, 
but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The first two verses of Romans 12. Not conforming to the world. Didn't John say it like this? Yet another of those New Testament writers, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. You and I are constantly surrounded by the influences and forces of the world, but if we ever expect to have eternal life, we can't find our life in those things. We've got to find our life in the things that are the commands of God. The humble keeping of them, the excitement and eagerness that comes with that which is the things of God. In order to find our life, we've got to lose it. Which life are you seeking? Do you have eternal life? Be honest with yourself. Do you have eternal life? You can know whether or not you're saved. 1 John 5, 13. Are you saved? If you die 30 seconds from now, is eternal life your possession? If not, perhaps you are finding your life in this life. And Jesus there promised, if you are, you're going to lose eternal life. Don't make that mistake. Don't make that tragic and eternal error. If we could assist you in some way today as we close this lesson, all that's remaining is a statement of summary. We've looked today at paradoxes. These paradoxes in the Bible are truly thought-provoking, aren't they? In order to be wise, you and I have to first be a fool. In order to appreciate the perspective of a Christian, we understand that Paul spoke about that in 2 Corinthians 6. Thirdly, we looked at the fact that in order to be strong, we must be weak. Number four, in order to be rich, we have to be poor and to have life, we've got to lose it. It's time each of us then make that personal analysis. If you need to respond to the gospel invitation today, in order to in fact have the means of this life which the, the, the Lord has spoken about, why not make the proper response today? We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this selected song. It may be that there's one here who has wandered away from the fold of faithfulness. You once knew what it was like to appreciate the truth and to live in such a way that life was yours and you knew it. It brought a peace, a tranquility, and a serenity, but you long for those days because you missed them. You now have a life that's turmoiled and a life that's tumultuous and a life that's agitated and frenetic. Don't you want to go back to the way it was? You can come back to your first love, you know. If you confess those sins and repent of them and ask brethren to pray to God for you, He'll respond to that prayer. But it may be that there's someone here who needs to become a Christian for the first time. What a transforming day it could be. You right now are clouded and covered in darkness and in sin and you could go into a baptismal water in a moment and rise full of light full of truth, and full of the appreciation of what it's like to be whole with God. If we could help you with that today, we would be happy to assist you in taking your confession and to baptize you. If either of these things might be the need of your life today, don't delay, but why not come now and be on the right side of the Bible's paradoxes? If we can help you, why not come while we stand and sing?